This audio recording is of our regular Sunday service, June 18th, 2017, at Restoration Road Church in Snohomish, Washington. The speaker is Brian Dixon. More information can be found at restorationroadchurch.com. Uh, my name is Brian. I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, I get to share from God's Word this morning. We're going to be in 2 Timothy chapter 2, so if you have your Bibles, I invite you to open those up to 2 Timothy chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, there are some at the welcome desk, and then also uh, in the foyer little area over there as you're coming in, there's Bible. So if you need one, please go grab one. <clears throat> Before we read our text this morning, though, there are a couple things that we need to remember, a couple things that I want to remind us that we've heard over the last few weeks as we're going through this series in 2 Timothy. That's important for us to keep at the forefront as we read through this letter. 2 Timothy is the last letter written by the Apostle Paul as he awaited execution in a Roman jail. Paul writes in chapter 4 of this letter, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Paul knew that he had fulfilled his calling and was now entrusting to Timothy the gospel message and the gospel mission. Timothy, the recipient of this letter, was a young pastor, pastoring a well-established church in Ephesus, a city that's intensely pagan. The city, the environment that, that this church is planted right in the middle of, believed that they had a special relationship with a pagan goddess. Therefore, there was all kinds of cultic worship that was going on around the church, creating a hostile environment to preach and teach about Jesus Christ. Needless to say, there's good reason why Paul reminds Timothy in chapter 1, for God did not give us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of self-control. I love how Paul uses the pronoun us. He's given us. I love how he says that, just evoking this. It's not just me he's given it to. It's not just you he's given it to, but we have a bond, a relationship here that's been built on the back of 14 years of ministry together, preaching the Word of God, planting churches, equipping men for the ministry that laid before them. Timothy's name shows up as co-author on six of Paul's 13 letters. Paul loved Timothy like a father loves a son. There is a bond there that is strong. Pastor Marty Valder was my pastor growing up. He was the pastor that preached the gospel, and in sixth grade, I, at youth group, as pastor shared, I was like, wow, this, this is amazing. What is this? And who is this guy? This loud, robust pastor, as he comes in the room, he's known as Pastor Party Marty. Everyone loves Marty. They want him there. And as I grew up, I was best friends with his son. So I got to see Marty both in ministry, but also just at home. And what I loved about Marty was he was the same everywhere. He was party Marty. As I got older into high school and got involved in youth ministry and, and with uh, worship team, I got to see just the ins and outs of how Marty dealt with ministry and, and the hard things that happened within ministry just kind of watching a bit from afar. But then he started inviting me in to just be a part, to go and help in different situations that I just got to see how he does this. 
as I entered into ministry, uh, became a full-time youth pastor, I realized pretty quickly, like, wow, this is hard. That there are a lot of kids and their parents that are really struggling. And I don't know what I'm doing. Lord, help me. And I'd always call Marty up. And even still to this day, I call Marty up. And we get together and we share just how we're doing in ministry, what God is doing. And Marty has always just been a source of encouragement for me, reminding me that this is not a have to, Brian. This is a get to. You get to do this in the Lord. So have joy. Marty is a man of joy. A man that his church knows. He's still pastoring his church. Hope Church at Silver Lake. Pastor Marty Valder. The people that go there know this about Marty, that if they call or are in need, he will answer, he will listen, and he will show up. And Marty displayed that to me and to my family several times. In fact, Marty often, when something had gone down within my own family, he was the first person there before I ever could show up. Marty, what are you doing here? I heard about it. I'm here. Don't worry about it. What do you need? In fact, when uh, Sean Wright passed away and Eli Herzler and I went to his apartment to check on him, no one had heard of him from him for a while, we found out that he had passed away. Who did I call? I called Marty. Marty, I don't know what to do. Marty said, I'll be there. Marty showed up bringing that joy in the midst of sorrow. And then when the policeman brought up that, well, someone needs to go share with the next of kin his passing, Marty looked at me and says, you want to go? I don't know. I don't know if I can do this. He says, don't worry, I'll go with you. Oh, okay. So he and I got in the car, and we drove to Sean's parents' place. And as we drove there, I just kept thinking over as he and I are mourning and, and remembering Sean and laughing, all these good things, just re, re, being reminded of all the times that Marty and I had the opportunities in, in ministry to work together. Missions trips to Mexico, uh, 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 outreach events and things of that nature. And watching Marty and just remembering how he ministered to me so much while he's still ministering to so many other people. And I love Marty. I look up to Marty like a father. And I imagine this is what Paul and Timothy's relationship was like. You see, as we read these scriptures, I think often we we take out the emotion and we take out that there's actual real people involved here. And in our text this morning, we have Paul who loves Timothy. And you see it right away as he opens his letter to Timothy, my beloved child. And even our text this morning, my child, he says. There is a bond there that is strong. And as we read through this text and as you read through this letter, know that that is there and that it's real. Also, as we read through our text and as you read through the letter, there are three themes that stick out. And they are engage, entrust, and endure. Engage, entrust, and endure. And these will be my three main points as we walk through the text this morning. So with this in mind, where Paul is at, where Timothy is at, 
their relationship. Let's read through the text together this morning. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Share in the sufferings as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits, since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules, and it is the hardworking farmer who ought to have first share of the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. This is God's word this morning. So right away, verse 1, we see this theme stick out, which is engage. Paul calls Timothy to engage the power of God's grace as his source of strength. But why grace? Why why grace? Why not the might of God? Or the sovereignty of God? Or the grandeur of God? Why grace? Well, let's think together for a moment about this. What is God's grace? What is God's grace? Well, I want to use R.C. Sproul's definition here, so it's not just me going, grace is, this is my own thing here. But using R.C. Sproul, theologian, pastor, teacher, he defines it this way in his book, Essential Truths of the Christian Faith. He says, God's grace is the unmerited favor of God. It is an action or disposition of God towards us. Okay, so God's grace is the undeserved approval of God. The undeserved approval of God. So what then would be the opposite of God's grace? Would it not be man's merit, his performance? And his performance that uh, deserves or demands this approval. Look what I've done, now I'm supposed to get something. By telling Timothy, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus, Paul is highlighting to him and to us this morning that the Christian life uh, can't be lived on our own merit and our own performance. That the only merit you can count on is the merit of Christ. And the merit of Christ comes to us by grace, which is the unmerited favor of God. And this is an action of God towards us. Listen to this. Turn to Titus, which is just the next letter over, if you have your Bibles open. Listen how what this action of grace does, how it affects the Christian and their life. Titus chapter 2, verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Listen how grace here is not passive, but active. As you call on the name of the Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, God's grace is fully poured out on you, and it continues to work in a powerful way within the believer over and over and over again, leading them towards sanctification drawing them into deeper relationship with God 
and with each other. And remember the hostile environment that Timothy is living in, he's teaching and he's preaching in. Engage the grace of God. Why? Because in order to endure, Timothy needs to engage the power of God's grace which overcame his sin, his fears, his doubts, and his inadequacies and will continue to do so through the power of the Holy Spirit. All right, so how does someone then engage the grace of God? If, if this is all true, which we're like, yeah, okay, like God's grace is good and it's, it's given to us. We don't deserve it. I know all that, but wait a second. How do I engage that? Again, to quote R.C. Sproul from the same book, he defines it this way, which I think is very helpful. As we grow in grace, not by a quantitative measure of some substance in, in us, but by the merciful assistance of the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, acting graciously towards us and upon us. Uh, The means of grace God gives to assist us in the Christian life includes Scripture, the sacraments, prayer, fellowship, and the nurture of the church. So church, if you are feeling spiritually tired, meaning you are begrudgingly coming to church, begrudgingly going to road group, community group. You are begrudgingly a part of youth group. You hesitate to know or to be known by others. I challenge you to consider the power of God's grace that has overcome your sin, your fears, your doubts, your inadequacies, and will continue to do so through the Holy Spirit if you engage God and his people. Jesus said it this way, if you love me, you will keep my commands. So if God's grace is an action of God towards us, then the expected reaction of the Christian would be engagement with God in his grace through his word and the Holy Spirit. Or simply put, engagement with God means we know, we keep, and we follow the commands of Jesus. We know and follow the commands of Jesus. Paul, in verse 2, moves to the next theme, which is entrust. Entrust the power of God's Word to others. He says this, Again, verse 2, And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Paul is entrusting the gospel message to Timothy and tells him to do so uh, with faithful men. Now he's giving him some direction here, some clear guidance here, because remember, he has this hostile environment that Timothy is teaching and preaching in. A cultic environment that wasn't uncommon where they would send someone into the church to corrupt the church from the inside. So Timothy needs to be careful. Timothy needs to entrust the gospel message to faithful men he could rely on, much like Paul did with Timothy. But what about our context? Who do we entrust 
this message to. I think it's really cool this morning that we got to see the baby dedications. As a church, we were able to, to together say, yes, we will partner with these parents in equipping these kids. Why? Because in our context, this is who we entrust the message to, our children. Our children. And not, not because we don't teach them about Jesus just so that they don't do dumb things, that they don't act sinfully or that they don't rebel, because guess what? They're going to do those things. And you know why? Because you're sinful and because I'm sinful and because they're sinful. It's not some insurance plan that we put out there like, okay, if we teach them about Jesus, don't worry. If something goes wrong, you're covered. It's like, this is not how this works. We teach them about Jesus. Why? So that the gospel is rooted deep within them, that they would not depart from it, that they would entrust it to others, that for generation after generation, the greatest gift that we've been given to the ones we love most would be shared with others. And that message would spread because it is the greatest message we've ever been given, the greatest gift we've ever been given. Think about that, the power of God's Word and the message that we have been given. As I've thought about it and think about it, the thing that comes to mind for me is one of my favorite stories, which is the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. I love that story. And when my girls were old enough, we were actually able to read it to them. I was just like, yes, so pumped. Like, you guys are going to love this. And they're just like, what's going on? Why is dad so excited? He's weird. I'm like, just wait, just wait for it. What I love about this story, you have these kids that enter into this magical world through a wardrobe, this world where animals talk and mythical creatures exist. And you have this white witch, though, who has spread her reign in terror over everything. Everything's cold and frozen. And everybody in this world has just gotten to the point of, well, this is just the way it is. And this is how we're to live our lives. Until these kids show up. In the book, they share how, well, two sons of Adam, two daughters of Eve, as they come, it fulfills this prophecy that begins the message that propels them on their journey. And what message is that that keeps them going? Aslan is on the move. Aslan's on the move. Listen to this, how he puts it. I'm going to share from the book. And the beaver says, they say Aslan's on the move. Perhaps has already landed. And now a very curious thing happened. None of the children knew who Aslan was any more than you do. But the moment the beaver had spoken these words, everyone felt quite different. Perhaps it has sometimes happened to you in a dream that someone says something which you don't understand, but in the dream it feels as if it has some enormous meaning, either a terrifying one which turns the whole dream into a nightmare or else a lovely meaning, too lovely to put into words, which makes the dream so beautiful that you remember it all your life and are always wishing you could get into that dream again. It was like that now. 
At the name of Aslan, each one of the children felt something jump inside them. Edmund felt a sensation of mysterious horror. Peter felt suddenly brave and adventurous. Susan felt as if some delicious smell or some delightful strand of music had just floated by her. And Lucy got the feeling that you have when you wake up in the morning and you realize that it is the beginning of the holidays or the beginning of summer. I love how he describes that. Because in the book, as they go on, it is that message that Aslan is on the move that keeps them going. In the book, it describes how they're hungry and tired, fearful, doubtful, but they keep going. And then they see him. They interact with Aslan, and all of it is worth it. The whole journey is worth it to the point where they give their entire lives to to his service. We will fight for you. We will spread this message of hope that Aslan is here. The message that we've been entrusted with, the power of this message is our source that helps us to endure. And this is the third theme we see Paul share. And this comes uh, verses 3 through 6. Again, he says this, Share in the sufferings as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civil pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules, and it is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Paul, remember, is writing this from a Roman prison, waiting to be executed. Paul preached the gospel. He planted churches. He equipped men for ministry. But Paul also was on the verge of death many times because he preached the gospel. Some of the churches he planted swayed from the truth, got lost in lies, and they had to have strict correction. And men that he trained for ministry betrayed him. Paul can say with confidence, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith because he has endured to the end. Timothy, and like all of us today, he needs the reminder to keep going and endure for the gospel. Timothy and the faithful men he trains will have to fight hard, run hard, and work hard so as to share in the sufferings of Christ as they spread the gospel message. And this is the point Paul is making to Timothy when he uses this metaphor as the soldier, athlete, and farmer. Think about the contrast, this metaphor. The unfaithful pursue lives as citizens, spectators, and consumers in order to avoid suffering for the gospel. Suffering is not a word we like. Suffering is the word we're just like, no, I choose not suffering. Whatever other box is, check. Not suffering. Don't want that. But the reality for these men and for these Christians and the early church is this is going to be part of the message you preach. You're going to suffer. This is a reality for many of our brothers and sisters around the world right now. Preaching in hostile places that don't want anything to do with the message of Jesus Christ And they are dying, spreading that message, sharing that message that they have been entrusted. 
to fight for, to run with, and to give to others. But what does this mean for us? Because the reality is, do not suffer like Paul and Timothy did in the early church. We do not suffer like a lot of our brothers and sisters around the world who are suffering. But that does not mean that we are not under attack by an enemy and that we are not partaking in spiritual warfare. I think apathy is one of the biggest uh, tools of the devil in America. Eh, no big deal. They'll take care of it. They'll take care of it. Paul makes it clear in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, he's writing again to the church in Ephesus, and he says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. He then proceeds to tell them to take up the whole armor of God that you would be able to defend against the enemy and fight. The question, though, is how do we fight an enemy we can't easily see? How do we fight something that's spiritual and not physical? Well, switch gears a bit here and ask you this question. Do you think that if you sat down at a table and somebody put a counterfeit money in front of you and real money in front of you, you'd be able to tell the difference? We had like a pro counterfeiter do this too. I wouldn't. I know, I know right now, I'd be like, no way. He's like, here's a dollar bill, counterfeit. Here's one that's not. Which one's which? Be like, don't know. Got two bucks though. You know, like, I just, I wouldn't know. And what's interesting though is when learning to identify counterfeit money, federal agents don't study the counterfeit. They study the genuine bills until they master the look and feel of the real thing so that when they see a counterfeit, they spot it. The same thing is true with us. We will not be able to engage in the spiritual battle if we are not familiar with the one true God. And where do we find out about him? His word. Paul, again, in this letter, he writes to Timothy in chapter 3 and says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. Paul also says, again, in describing the armor of God in Ephesians 6, he says that the sword of the Spirit, the main weapon that you have against the enemy, is this, the Word of God. Do we know how to use it? I think the sad reality is often we're not quite sure what this has to say about godliness and life. Therefore, we're not quite sure how to fight The perspective of this is a spiritual battle, not a physical one, is important for us to keep in mind. If it's spiritual, then it's outside of us. I need to go somewhere else to figure out how to fight this battle because I can't. But if it's physical, well, okay, I can do that. 
I believe when we keep that mind that this is simply physical, that's what leads to, well, I don't like them because X, Y, Z, and I don't like that because X, Y, Z, and, and forget about relationship with them because X, Y, Z. But when the battle is spiritual and that is at the forefront of our minds, that changes things. Perspective change. If the battle is spiritual, then maybe there's something more going on here than just us having a rift between each other. And if we do have that, then what does God tell me to do? Go make it right. But if I'm not looking or thinking spiritually and only physically, then what is our natural tendency? Uh, No, thank you. I'd rather not deal with that. As long as I can avoid them or keep this in the dark, we're good. How can I truly know how to love my brother if I do not truly know the love of the Father? How can I truly forgive my brother if I do not truly know the forgiveness of the Father? And how can I speak truth to my brother if I do not know the truth spoken by the Father in his word? These are the questions that as we ask these things, we need to be Uh, reminded and remember that we can know these things if we engage God, His grace, and preach the gospel to ourselves. Remembering the substitutionary work of Christ done on our behalf, it is His merit I cling to, not my own. Remember that we are called to entrust the power of God's Word to others. That we have been called to make disciples, to baptize, and to teach them all that Christ has commanded. I love the disciples that come to Jesus and they say, what's the greatest commandment, Jesus? They're like, what's what's he going to say, you know? Love the Lord your God with everything you have and love your neighbor as yourself. Oh, what? Jesus sums up the entirety of all the law In that simple statement, love God with everything you have, your relationship vertically, and love people as yourself, horizontal. This is what sums up the law. This is why it was given. It was given to you so that you can see your relationship with God is broken and there needs to be a way to fix it. And your relationship with each other is broken and there needs to be a way to fix it. Well, guess what? Jesus is on the move. Jesus is on the move. His Holy Spirit is working. His grace is powerful, still active within the believers today. And it is that message that gives us the endurance to keep going. Do not give up. Keep going. Einstein said about his genius, as everyone, he's the most smartest man ever. What is it like to be the smartest man ever? And he just said, I don't think I'm the smartest ever. I just think I stuck with a problem longer. As Christians, followers of Jesus, when you feel like giving up, remember that we've been called to endure. How do I endure? I need the gospel message. And that gospel message speaks of the grace of God 
that is the source of your strength. Endure, entrust, engage, endure, I'm sorry, engage, entrust, and endure. These are the themes of our text today. This was the themes of the early church and all the believers before us. This is my prayer for us today would be our theme that we would engage God in each other through his word, that we would entrust what God is teaching to each other and to our children, and that we would endure remembering the message we have. Jesus is on the move. Jesus is on the move. This is God's word for us this morning. Let's pray.